Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomit Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Jamin Ball on the pod. Jamin was is currently a partner at Altimeter Capital and previously at Redpoint Ventures. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always fun chatting with you about uh, random stuff. So happy to do it in a more, more formal setting. This is fun. I agree. It's always fun to talk with you, and, and that's why I'm excited to do this. Let's start off with your background. So how'd you come to be a partner at Altimeter? And what's one of the funniest things is as I was doing some research for this, I happened to stumble across your tennis career, which you know I played tennis actually in high school. I was unfortunately not good enough to play in, in college and am still trying to play today, but would love to hear just kind of your story from the beginning. Yeah. Well, well, in a weird way, uh, I kind of always wanted to end up uh, in an investing role. So I grew up in the Bay Area, grew up in Silicon Valley, uh, just in, in a weird way, you know, didn't want to be a, a firefighter or an astronaut. I was always like, man, this tech stuff's pretty cool. Like, I, I want to do that one day, like work with some of these exciting companies, you know, at the forefront of innovation. I grew up in Silicon Valley, you know, played a lot of tennis, as you mentioned. I think tennis was you know, probably the biggest part of my life uh, for many, many years, probably from the time I was seven or eight to you know, a senior in college, it was, it was pretty much all I did every day <laughs> that, 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 and that in academics, of course. So stayed local for, for college, went to Stanford, played tennis there. And then right after I remember this was maybe I was a junior or senior when I was thinking, okay, how do I, how do I break into that venture capital industry? And I, I won't say who, but I got together with a pretty prominent venture capitalist who gave me some funny advice. He told me, or it wasn't advice, but I took it as advice, I guess. He said, you know, I was arrested four times in college. And if you want to be a successful venture capitalist, like you got to be a risk taker. And I'd like to think, you know, my, you know, my personality is what made me a successful investor. So in my head, I was thinking, man, like, all right, easy. Just need to be arrested four times uh, and then you're good to go. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, uh, after school, I went more of the, the kind of the financial route, put in investment banking at Morgan Stanley for a couple of years. And then from there, I went to Redpoint Ventures was where I was at for a little under five years. Redpoint had a an early stage fund as well as a growth fund, kind of early stage, more seed series A, growth, more series B, C, and D. I was on that team until, let's see, late 2020. And I joined the Altimeter team about a little over two years ago now, where my primary focus is, is enterprise software, typically things on the infrastructure side at that early growth phase. So series Series B, C, D, you know, generally partnering with companies when they're at the inflection point of kind of having a product built and then looking to either build the go-to-market around that product or or kind of scale, scale the go-to-market. So it's, you know, open source businesses that can be pre-revenue, uh, you know, or they can't have revenue, uh, but usually at that that kind of inflection point. Uh, but yeah, having a, a good time, lots of changes to, to the industry, it feels like lots of things have stayed the same. It's, it's an exciting time, I think, to be to be an investor of any kind. That's for sure. Well, now we know if we see a, a rap sheet ever for you, yeah. we know the reason as to why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you've been at some incredible funds. Redpoint and Altimeter have been around for quite a long time, have you know, storied histories. Mm -hmm. And also what's interesting is have backed incredible public and private companies focused on, on different stages, right? And could you talk about maybe unique lessons that you've learned from each fund and how you apply those going forward? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons is is really just around essentialism, right? I think in any kind of investing, whether that's public or private, things things can get very emotional, right? On the public side, you can get these big swings, you know, in one day, let alone weeks or months, right? That you know, you could have a thesis, and your thesis could tell you 
I expect things to either go up or down, right? But in the short term, you can get really big swings that might challenge that thesis. And, you know, it, it's hard not to listen to external factors that, right, that might change your mind, right? And so I'd say on, on, the, on the private, or on the, yeah, on the private side, similar things can happen, right? You know, you might be excited about an idea, or, or maybe let's take the other, you might not be excited about an idea because of the fundamental work that you've done, but, you know, you, you hear firms are chasing it, or, you know, you hear it's going to get a round done, or you, you hear things that, you know, might change your mind. Whereas, you know, very early on, like what I learned was it really, it doesn't matter what you don't do, right? It doesn't matter who you don't invest in, right? Like you can be wrong and you can pass on a company and it could work out very well and it could make the investors a lot of money who did the round that you passed on. And it's important to learn from, learn from those lessons to apply them to the future. But the only thing that really matters are the investments and the partnerships that you do make. And, you know, because ultimately those will kind of define your, your investment career and your investment track record. And so I think being able to, as much as possible, you know, reduce down the decision-making process to one made in a vacuum where you're not thinking about external factors, you're not chasing because of FOMO, but really trying to think more first principles, hey, putting everything else aside, like, what do I think about this product? What do I think about this market? And, and you know, when I wake up in the morning, pissed about their funding round and a press release that I wasn't a part of, like, would it, would it drive me crazy or not? Right. And so I think it, it really comes down to essentialism, focusing on the few things that matter and not being distracted with kind of everything else that happens along the way. How do you do that? Because at Altimeter, you also have the public hedge fund yeah. side where things are going, like you said, yeah, one yeah. day, 30% down or, or 30% up, right? And it's right. just, it's, you know, there's always sort of craziness going on. And then meanwhile, you have the private companies where those marks aren't happening and you're just mm -hmm. trying to steadily build the business to something that will prevail over the long term. And so I'm curious on a day where let's just say, it's a bad day in the market, right? Some bellwether yeah. stock came out. I think happened with Microsoft recently, right? Mm -hmm. Like something comes out, the earnings report isn't great. All of a sudden everything's down. How do you guys deal with that fact of like seeing the world blow up on one side, yeah. but in the meantime, hey, this is a really exciting new company that we're looking at the round of. We believe in the long-term mm -hmm. progress of it. Like how do you take those two apart? In yeah, your yeah, yeah. Well, I think in many ways, the companies are ideas that, you will swing back and forth on, you know, based on being a prisoner of the moment, usually aren't ones that you have the deep conviction in. And so in many ways, it almost kind of helps us self-select out of the stuff we don't have deep conviction on. If an emotional swing on the public side or whether it's public markets or, or anything else, right? If, if an emotional swing will change your mind, you probably don't have that deep conviction. And I'd say having a team that does a lot of public that I get to kind of sit next to and learn from every day, like helps out a lot on the private side where you're like, sure, there might be a little bit of what you described where you kind of have to gut check yourself. Uh, but at the same time, if we think about public or private businesses, just to, just as businesses, right? The public ones just, there has to be marked day to day and, and stock prices go up, stock prices go down. You know, the business could be growing, beating plan, but the stock price could be going down. There's things out of the company's control. And I think it's pretty topical right now as we think about companies who raised at really big valuations that are kind of contemplating down rounds versus flat rounds with structure where like, look, the reality is, is that public companies go up every day, up and down every day. But, but so do you know, private valuations go up and down every day as well. There just isn't a liquid market that's 
kind of marking it to market. Um, and it's really on kind of the management team and the board to help steady the ship in, in terms of volatility. Because on, on the private side, it definitely happens in more step function type manners. But a lot of times the valuation is set by things that are outside the company's control. And so if you only focus on you know, executing well, building a product in a sustainable and efficient way, you know, the valuation is what the valuation is, but like, let that be set by some third party, right? You know, all you can focus on is the things that you can control. So I guess that's kind of a roundabout way of, of answering your question, which is, look, valuations go up, valuations go down, but at the end of the day, like we're going to have underlying theses that we feel strongly about. Knowing like what someone's willing to pay for, for an asset one day or the other, like doesn't affect that underlying thesis. It does affect what price we'd be willing to pay at a given point in time, but it doesn't under, you know, change the answer to, do we love this company opportunity or not? That makes complete sense. And you know, one thing that I think a lot of people know you well for is clouded judgment. And mm -hmm. for, for those who don't know, it's a weekly newsletter. It covers every, everything about the public trends in cloud and SaaS stocks. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes just so people have it. But um, it is one of my favorite weekly reads, right? I love just diving into it, not only to see the metrics, but also, you know, I, I loved how increasingly you've been putting in more commentary on things that you've been studying and, and, and thinking through. And I think that's been helpful from my perspective. But just describe some of the lessons that you've pulled out from studying public company metrics mm -hmm. over the last three years. Like in your opinion, I don't know if you can say, hey, what's one yeah. or two, you know, really important metrics or or whatever, like what are some important, you know, trends or, or things you pulled away from from studying them yeah yeah i mean one thing kind of related to what we just said is like you can you know company fundamentals can be going up and down and, and valuation can be doing a whole different thing just because there are so many factors outside of a company's control that do go into it right you know one being i think the biggest takeaway over the last few years which is everyone kind of knows or everyone knew before but you know definitely knows now is just the correlation between interest rates and valuation right and we had this period of time where interest rates went to zero and valuations, you know, shot through the roof. And then obviously the last few months as interest rates have gone back up, right? The opposite is, has happened. But I would say, you know, as I reflect on the last few years, so I started writing the blog almost three years ago now. So kind of like right at the onset of the pandemic, it's, it's been very interesting just to watch the arc of a lot of these businesses, which just went from, you know, some element of COVID pull forward that was combined with low rates and excess capital, which just created this whoosh of demand as the only thing that was going into evaluation was your growth rate. And so the market just incentivized growth, 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 buy, buy, buy. So a lot of these companies' fundamentals started to do well, right? Whether that was an extreme element of COVID pull forward, right? I don't know, like, like a Peloton or a Zoom or, you know, a less pronounced version of that, but yet still COVID pull forward. Right. And now we're in the just like the complete opposite, as we've seen companies look to optimize spend, come out of that. I think looking at the latest reports from some of the cloud vendors has been really interesting. And I might I'll just give rounded numbers. so I don't you know mess up the specifics. But like you look at something like an Azure growing 50 percent year over year, not too long ago, grew 38 percent in Q4 but they called out a December growth rate of mid thirties. And then they guided the Q1 growth rate of low thirties, right? That's a, you know, 50 to 30 in not too long a time. That's a really big decel. AWS, something similar. They were growing 40% a little over a year ago, grew, oh, I can't remember, low twenties, 20 uh, in Q4, but called out a mid teens growth rate in January, right? Like 
and I believe I'd have to check this, but I believe if they grew mid teens in Q1, that would actually put that would actually mean they sequentially declined revenue on a quarter over quarter basis, which like hasn't happened in, in something like 10 years. And so you have this really just like interesting dynamic where long term, right, this move, the secular shift to the cloud, like I don't fully buy, hey, the reason for that slowdown is that the cloud is just more penetrated. We're further into the S curve and there's just less room. I think that might be a little bit more of a prisoner of the moment type argument. Now, again, of course, we are moving out the S curve, but I think we're far from the mature end of that S curve. But there really is this dynamic where growth is slowing and decelerating because you have headwinds to new business ads, you have headwinds to kind of like optimization, whether that's around solidating vendors or looking to kind of like contract your spend with your big ticket item. I mean, we talk to companies who who say like we're staffing engineers full time to reduce my bill in X vendor. And that's a pretty crazy thing. You know, I'm gonna pay someone 100, 200K a year so that they can save me 500k a year and this other thing, right? It's it's an interesting time. But through through it all, like I I, I think more than anything, we we've seen at the end of the day, no matter what the valuation environment is in the moment or what the market is rewarding, like the businesses that will win long term are the ones that can generate cash for shareholders. And it may not seem like that when the market says, hey, all that matters is revenue. We're giving you a revenue multiple. But at the end of the day, if you build a business that can generate cash and return that cash to shareholders those are the businesses that will ultimately be the most successful over the longest period of time. Yeah. if it, It's interesting, but basically you posted something recently that showed the top 10 from this year, the top 10 from last year, and the top 10 from the year mm-hmm. before that. And the thing that I took away from it, maybe this is biased as someone who mostly <laughs> is, is investing in infra and, and software infrastructure, but the thing I took away from it was, wow, there's a lot of infrastructure in that top mm-hmm. 10, right? Mm-hmm. And con- consistently has has stayed there. And so I have reasons why I think that is, but I'm curious, why do you think that's the case? And given the backdrop that we just talked about, about cloud cost optimization and mm-hmm. people spending less and monitoring and trying to staff teams to, to manage it, do you see that potentially changing in the future? Or how do you kind of think about that? It's interesting. I'm also going to be very biased. So <laughs> as, as someone who primarily invests in infrastructure, I, I, our firm obviously does everything, but you know, me personally spend more time in the infrastructure world. I've thought a little bit about it. I would say on the application side, in many ways we saw, you know, the, the big move there was the platform shift to the cloud. And we saw applications being built in the cloud. And you'll call this like Salesforce, Workday, others around, I don't know, like mid, 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, right? Kind of around that time. So call it like applications have been, have been built in the cloud for a little bit longer. When you think about infrastructure, like AWS, Redshift and those were you know, maybe more like 20 teens. There hasn't been quite as much time. And then you look at something like Redshift, like, well, what did Redshift do? Or, or S3, like it gave us the building blocks for cloud infrastructure in a way that cloud did for cloud applications. And so I think on one hand, a lot of these infrastructure tools are just kind of riding a wave that started a little bit later. And then at the same time, I think for a lot of these tools, it's all about what's your moat. I think at the application layer, we see a lot of, you know, I describe it as like the new shiny toy where you have a version of a product, whether it's some marketing software some analytics software or whatever it might be, where unless you can really ingrain yourself in a workflow, there's probably just going to be a slightly better version of it 
that comes out a few years from now that, that then you have to compete with, right? And again, unless you are, I always use, unless you're, you know, unless you have like a admins for your product, right? Like a Salesforce admin or like a Atlassian admin who's kind of like building a custom implementation workflows. It's like, how sticky are you really? Whereas for, I think a lot of these infrastructure names, it's just like, if you want to rip out like a Confluent or something, it's just so hard to do. You built products and applications on top of it. And so I don't know, I, I think in many ways, it's, it's, it's kind of a combination of where we are in the maturity of the move to cloud infrastructure with what I would describe as a little bit better moats lead to what is perceived to be more growth durability. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, infrastructure models lend themselves to different business models, whether it's kind of like usage-based, you know, there's like a lot of things that go into that, but you know, I'm, I'm certainly excited to, to be an infrastructure investor and a cloud infrastructure investor for, for the foreseeable future. My general thesis has been around the mission criticality of those building blocks, right? Which make it so much harder to to switch off of. And when people think about switching costs, it's usually it's just, oh, okay, if I if I switch from not to use any if I switch from one legal signing document product to another legal signing document product, the I may break some integrations, I may break some custom scripts that have been built or things like that. But if I'm switching my S3 bucket or if I'm switching my core compute clusters, you know, that that is a much more one specialized lift and two also likely a lot more APIs breaking, a lot more connections breaking as you do that. So yeah. that's been something that has always just driven me towards saying, hey, I think some of the best business models are are those mission critical infrastructure companies. But at the same time, it's funny. I think in some cases, what you get is in, into a recessionary environment, infrastructure holds very well, right? Mm-hmm. And then coming out of the recessionary environment, sometimes you actually have the application software companies performing very well just because now you have this tailwind of budgets returning back mm-hmm. to marketing and sales mm-hmm. teams and this pickup of of tools and, and things exploding. And so that brings me kind of to my next question, which is around, you've talked about assumption pricing versus seat-based pricing, right? And I want you to talk about what's, what's the difference between those two and, mm-hmm. and your kind of general... I don't, I wouldn't call it a thesis, but observations around yeah, yeah. what you think is occurring right now and how we think that moves going forward. Well, I think just the easiest way to break it down, right? So seat-based pricing you know, is going to be based on the number of users of your product. So you know, let's use like a Salesforce, like how many sales reps do you have? Okay. You, you know, company X hires Shomek to be a, an AE on their team. Well, we need one more license of, of Salesforce because we've hired this, this new sales rep. So we'll, you know, pay the incremental cost. So like the, the incremental marginal cost is the next person. Whereas for a lot of these infrastructure products, it's not always like that, right? Take a snowflake, for example, you might have a lot of people who are querying your warehouse, but at the end of the day, like the marginal unit for that business is more, you know, how much data are you storing and then consuming versus how many people do you have using that data? And so like the way I always like to think about it, and we've worked with businesses that have transitioned from seat-based models to usage-based models is usually you want your business model to kind of tightly align the value your customers are deriving from your product to the to the price that you're paying. And, and obviously you have different incentives if you're, you know, the paying customer or, or the vendor. Uh, but to the extent those start to diverge, right, to the extent the customer starts using and getting more and more and more value out of your product, but your cost kind of stays similar, right, as a vendor, yeah, you don't like that, right? And you want to be able to capture that value. And so what do you give up? Okay, you, you give up a little bit of the kind of predictable nature of, of seat-based 
to more of the variable nature of, of consumption. And obviously there's hybrids of the two of those that will have a commit plus variable consumption unit on top. There's lots of different flavors of, of consumption based models, but I think the open-ended question, which hasn't been answered yet is, hey, going into a recession, into a down market, which business model is better, right? And like, I wouldn't necessarily agree with the premise of that question, but I think as we think about, okay, as we model these businesses coming out of this recession, should you get a benefit or a ding based on the business model you had? Because a lot of these software companies, you're modeling multi-year DCFs, right? And if you have to model in a cyclical market in between that, you should either get a boost or, or a hit on if, if the model is more, more or less durable. I mean, we'll kind of get answers to some of those questions coming out of the cycle. You know, but again, like I don't, I don't necessarily fully agree with the premise of that. So that could even be another <laughs> discussion point. I don't think it's always as simple as like which business model is better. I think that reduces it a bit too much. You heard it here first, PLG or, or top-down sales or whatever, not one bottle is better. It just, you have to match it to, you have to match your go-to-market to your products. You have to match your pricing to your product and to your end user needs. And so I think that makes a ton of sense. One question I have though is what's interesting. So you mentioned the, the predictability of seat-based pricing versus say usage-based pricing. And one question I've always had is from a cash flow perspective, Let's say you're doing usage-based pricing and let's say it's not paid up front, right? It's getting paid on a, on a monthly basis or quarterly basis or wh- however, however it's going. A seat-based side, you sort of know like, okay, I got my 10 seats. Mm-hmm. I'm getting paid X amount. Life's good, right? On the usage-based, I don't know if it happens to be you know, a religious holiday or the German soccer team wins and everyone takes off, right? And all of mm-hmm. a sudden... It just so happens that people aren't using my product because they're all celebrating for that week. And so how, how do you think about that cash flow dynamic? And is that something that concerns you? Or is it just like, hey, as you get a big enough base of customers, that will all kind of work its way out? Yeah, I mean, on, on some level, like, right, as you get bigger, those kind of more micro trends tend to, to kind of even out. But I'd say like most importantly, at the end of the day, like I look for is not necessarily like one business model or the other, but really like software is like mission critical that you just can't turn off and like have to use. And like the end of the day, if you are that, whether you're seat-based or consumption-based, you will continue to deliver value for your customers and then then kind of capture that value. And so it's interesting because like in many ways, what we've seen so far learning lessons from this cycle is even if you are mission critical, it is easier to cut consumption spend faster because you don't have to go through a contract negotiation. Maybe your renewal isn't up for another five months, but what you say is, hey, Shomik, like renewal's coming up in five months, but guess what? We're totally churning unless you let me sign this new deal and that's 80% less now. And you know, then it's just more of, there's more friction. Whereas with these consumption models, they can lead themselves to a lot of excess really quick and then a lot of optimizations. I, I heard someone describe these models as it's like a uh, buzzsaw like tilted on its side where you, know, you can think of like the blades of the saw as these rapid periods of optimization, uh, rapid periods of growth, followed by rapid period of optimization, followed by rapid period of growth, followed by rapid period of optimization. But the important thing is, is like buzzsaw is tilted on its side. So like the overall trend is up, but you just get a lot of this. And so I'm, I think in many ways, like in a market like this, you'll see kind of optimization models take a hit on growth first with seat-based models take a hit later because it just takes longer to renegotiate contracts for that to flow its way down to revenue. 
And then coming out, you'll see something similar where you'll see the acceleration of consumption models first, followed by seat based models second. And again, all of that assumes we're talking about good businesses that are mission critical and, and not ones that'll just be turned off entirely. But I, like, I think there's also an argument to say like, hey, look, the only businesses that can afford or that are in a position to charge usage-based are, are ones that are, are not shelfware and are actually really delivering value. You know, otherwise you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to sell anything. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. So one thing I, I got to ask you about, which uh, yeah. is, is, so I, I think for people who look at the recent private deals that that Altimeter has done, at mm -hmm, least from, mm -hmm. I, I don't know the, from the software side, I'm saying, it, it seems like you guys have a particular thesis that you've, you've honed and you're actively pursuing. And that is the thesis behind cloud data infrastructure mm -hmm. being a big deal of the future. And so yeah. some of the ones that I've seen at least publicly mentioned are Snowflake, of course, DBT, ClickHouse, Mother Duck, Airbyte, Prisma. I mean, just some incredible, incredible companies and solutions in there. So talk to me about what is your thesis? And I'm making this very broad. You could take it however you'd like, but your thesis behind cloud data infrastructure. Yeah, look, I, I would say, you know, Altimeter as a whole, we tend to be very thematic investors generally, where we want to say, hey, what are the super cycles that we think are going to exist and are going to create a lot of value over the next 10 years? Like, let's go invest behind those super cycles. And so Altimeter as a whole, we're currently investing out of our sixth fund, Across all of those funds, kind of cumulatively, we have, I'm pretty sure it's less than 60 or, or right around 60 portfolios companies total. Tends to be a pretty concentrated approach where we are picking these super cycles. You know, to answer your question more broadly, I think what we'd say and what I'd say is the data infrastructure market more broadly is a, is a huge, massive market with tons of spend still happening, not in the cloud, right? Whether that's, you know, on-prem or elsewhere. So our view is, is if you look at kind of the, the big shift, which I think kind of goes back to like S3 in Redshift, it's unlocked so much value that we think, A, will be captured as businesses move kind of on-prem workloads to the cloud, as, as well as create new workloads that will, you know, kind of greenfield be done in the cloud. But that data really is at its core what is going to differentiate a lot of these businesses, whereas historically, maybe you differentiated on UI and usability and workflow, like now a lot of companies are going to differentiate based on the data they have, whether that's product decisions they're making being informed by data or pricing decisions being informed by data like that really is kind of the new currency. And you see companies like big and small investing in the infrastructure to support that, right? And you know, we've seen, I, I kind of had a tweet about this the other day, right? The emergence of all these new data stacks, whether it's like the analytics stack or the AI stack or the real-time stack, there's lots of things people want to do with data. Our view is we're still in the early innings of, of people actually being able to make sense of their data, right? The analogy we use is, you know, people will say data is the new oil and we'll, we'll say, no, data is, data is oxygen, right? It's, it's not just the new oil, it's necessary to survive. And if you don't invest in the proper data infrastructure, you're not, you're not going to survive. And so I'd say it's a few things. I think it's a huge, one of the biggest markets, right? That is being kind of like subdivided into many, you know, still very large sub markets with some really exciting companies and entrepreneurs building products in those spaces. And so we, we've invested a lot of time historically, we'll continue to invest a lot of time. So I'd love to shift a bit to the macro view, because there's a lot of founders that will listen to this. And frankly, I think you are the 
the person that writes the most coherently in this universe <laughs> about what's going on, or at least you're, you, you lay out your thought process around how things are shifting and, 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 and why you do that. And by the way, of course, this is not investment advice or anything like that, right? This is just a, a general viewpoint of things that are going. But founders, next round investors, and everyone just saying like, hey, if you're not going 500% year over year, like you're not even mm -hmm. relevant to us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so everyone was hire faster, ship product faster, grow your, grow your TAM faster, everything. Now, all of a sudden, we're in a world where it's efficiency, it's focus on your core strengths, right? It's, it's think about if you can make if you can be free cash flow positive, mm -hmm. like all it's, it's a very weird shift for a founder where all of a sudden you go from six months ago, it was a completely different conversation or whatever, 12 months ago, let's call it. And now it's, it's very different. So just what's going on, just yeah, describe yeah, yeah. it in simple terms, right? We know interest rates are going up, right? But like, what the heck is going on? This inflation curve seems to be slowing, but it's still high. Like that matter. I mean, just mm -hmm. tease that apart. Okay. Lots to unpack. <laughs> I would say when, I mean, and even taking another step back, like when I think about what's happened, one, when interest rates go to zero, the only asset classes that are really attractive are growth because you can't generate a return in a risk-free way. And so you have a lot of money start chasing growth assets that then start chasing incremental revenue, where if all that really matters is cash flows in future years out, like the bigger you can get, the faster you can get, like that's all that matters, right? And, and that's obviously misguided. At the end of the day, free cash flow and being able to generate free cash flow at scale on a per share basis, right? So, you know, generating free cash flow in a way that isn't overruled by kind of an increased share count, right? And obviously SBC and dilution are kind of in the mix or talked about a lot more today. That's really all that ever matters, but you'll have these moments in time where the focus changes. And so we've gone through all that. We don't need to kind of rehash what's happened. I think everyone is, it's kind of just, look at the NASDAQ, it's, it's more clear. But right now it's just this very interesting moment in time where we have inflation coming down. We have a Fed who's saying we're getting close to the peak of, of what rates will be. And so on one can, hand, oh, yeah. Can sorry, I ask you a question actually? When, yeah, when yeah. you say inflation is going down. Yeah. Okay. So sure, it's going down. But when I go and look at gas, it's yeah. still higher than it was in 2020. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah. my eggs are certainly higher yeah, 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 than yeah, yeah. what I was buying before and everything else. So like, what it's everyone's always looking at like the the second derivative of yeah. you know, all these metrics, and they're like, oh, look, it's trending down. And and meanwhile, it's just like, well, okay, but when I go to the grocery store, like, yeah, yeah. it's still pretty damn high, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. what does that mean by inflation's going down and and why is the, are those second order mm -hmm. effects actually important for people to be thinking about, even though it may seem like mathematical overkill or something? Like I mean, so in, in, I think the easiest way to think about it is inflation is it's the year over year metric. And so what we're looking at is the, the change from one year to the year prior. And so you could look at the cost of eggs or, or the cost of gas. And if it's higher than it was two years ago, but it's the same price as it was a year ago, that item will have 0% inflation because it hasn't changed year over year. So I think what we're seeing now is, and again, this is why high inflation is such a risk because if you have persistent 5 6% inflation, what that means is like every year that the basket of goods is going up 5 6%, and that just compounds on itself very quickly. So that's, that's the real risk. I think the inflation and coming down narrative is, is really just kind of like a mathematical one, which says, hey, you could have a, a big increase in the price of goods. 
But over time, if those prices stagnate, just mathematically that year over year compare will go down and down and down, right? And so what we're seeing now is part of it is that, part of it is some of these goods included in that basket are actually going negative year over year. And so that is definitely contributing to kind of the headline inflation number coming down. But the big question, I think this is very topical because it's all happened in like the last couple of weeks, which is, all right, well, what leads to sustained inflation on an ongoing basis, like where every year the price of goods goes up 5%. Usually that falls down to the labor market and wage growth, where when we have a very tight labor market where unemployment is is really low, and let's just take a software analogy, right? Like if you're a, you know, an undergrad and you're looking for a software engineering job and you have Facebook, Amazon and Microsoft, who are all competing for you to give you an offer. Like that, that demand is just going to drive up the price. They have to pay for you, right? Because <laughs> you say, hey, I want to work for you, but you're offering me 90K. This place is offering me 100K. And then maybe the third place says, fine, we need you. Like, we'll give you 110, right? And so when you have lots of options in a tight labor market, usually that leads to wage growth. And that wage growth then leads to sustained inflation. And so you'll hear Powell talk a lot about how the low unemployment rate and the tightness in that labor market kind of gives him the ammo to keep raising rates because <clears throat> that labor market dynamic is what could lead to sustained inflation. And so we were, I don't know what, what inflation peaked at, right? But it, it's coming down. The Fed wants to get it to 2%, but the risk is, hey, maybe it's coming down, but then it gets stuck at 4%. And that's the tough part, right? What happened in the last week, which was very interesting, was we had a jobs report that showed the economy added a little over 500,000 jobs in the month versus expectations of more like 200,000. So, and unemployment was at you know, 50 or low, or I can't remember if that, that's actually true, but yeah, you know, some really low number. And so on one hand, you say, wow, okay, that could be very hawkish for the Fed. Hawkish just meaning, you know, they might go higher because that super tight labor market is going to lead to sustained inflation. So the Fed will have to go higher to combat that. And you hear people say, hey, the only way we're really going to kill inflation is if unemployment, unemployment soars up because that, is, will have the, that will create the desired effects. Now, the interesting thing about this jobs report was that wage growth wasn't high. So you had like a very tight labor market. You had unemployment super low, but you didn't have the wage growth that you would have expected to follow that. And so that then kind of created this narrative or, or added more fuel to the soft landing narrative, which says, hey, if there is a way where unemployment can stay low while wage growth stays low, we might actually see inflation coming down without an economic recession. Now, again, I, I don't know, like calling whether we have a recession, whether we have a soft landing or hard landing, like what does a soft landing really even mean? And like, how do you characterize like a light recession versus a big one? Yeah, I, I don't know. That, that's all hard to do. But I would say if folks ascribe like a very low percentage chance to like a soft recession or light recession, you know, like maybe now it's maybe it's still low, but it's, it's higher. The, the odds are higher than they were a few weeks ago. Is you've kind of got this incremental data. Now, all eyes will definitely be on, you know, the next iteration or monthly versions of this data to see, hey, was this like a point in time isolated trend? And like, could we actually be heading to a world where we have a tight labor market with low wage growth, which could lead to declining inflation back to the 2% target without a lot of incremental rate hikes. Uh, 
but I write a lot about macro. I talk a lot about macro. I'm the furthest thing from the yeah. most qualified to be talking about it. I just like to absorb and digest the things that other smart people say around me. <laughs> but that, that's, I think, one of the one of the reasons why I love reading Clouded Judgment so much is because you're synthesizing these learnings from a from somebody who's just living alongside the founders, right? Living alongside the, the, yeah. the companies and, and trying to help them out, but trying to synthesize it. And, and one of the things that I've kept in my mind is is this this ability for founders to be macro aware, but yeah. micro obsessed, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think a lot of founders get the micro obsession piece, right? But then they hear the macro aware piece and then they're seeing, but there's a bunch of companies that are letting go of people and things are happening and they're all freaking out, like what's going on and all that. And so I think that's something that, a lot of founders are trying to understand and and wrap their hand, wrap their heads around. Okay, well, I know I can control the things on the micro side and in every day of my business, but at the same time, people are telling me, "Hey, you need to be aware of what's going on in the capital markets from the macro standpoint." And so, what what, what gives? Right? Like, yeah, should I be right. freaking out? And is the house on fire? And should I be you know running around? And what what, what should I be doing? So what? From your perspective of answering that, why should you be macro aware? Mm -hmm. Why is that important for founders right now to just be be thinking about or or and, and having the context behind? Yeah, I, I think I mean I think the way you phrase it is perfect, right? Which is be macro aware but micro obsessed. And so I'll, I'll dive into that first with I think something I said earlier, which is look like no matter what, companies should be focused on how do I build a business that generates free cash flow right? Not just a business that grows well. So like, no matter what's going on in the macro, like that should always be goal one, two, and three, because that is what will ultimately lead to the most sustainable business that will capture the most value over a longer period of time. I think being, you know, micro aware, especially in a moment like this, like why it's important is because, I mean, I think this is like super relevant now, as I'm sure, you know, you are kind of coming out of now, maybe it would have been more relevant a week, weeks or months ago, but you know, coming out of 2023 planning, you have to answer the question for yourself as, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, all right, well, what, how many people do I want to hire this year? What do I think demand for my product will be, right? And as we've seen demand definitely curtailed over the last few months and, and companies are thinking about, okay, what plan do I want to build for this upcoming year. Now, like a key input to that is like, how many people do I want to hire, right? Because what you don't want to do is overhire, right? And then be left with a big go-to-market team that just didn't have the demand, you know, there wasn't the demand for the product because everyone's kind of battening down the hatches. I think it's also important. I mean, look, the whole reason I kind of started the blog was you had a lot of founders, especially first-time founders, right? Who, who have never gone through an IPO event or gone public, who really only started following the public markets when they needed to, right? Which is when the bankers started telling them like, hey, like now's the time to go public, right? And it's it's a totally different beast than, than the private markets. And it, it can definitely be one that's hard to kind of grok quickly. And so the whole like hope of the blog was like, hey, how can I create something that in many ways almost like drip feeds info in a digestible way to entrepreneurs? They can kind of slowly start paying attention to the public market so that when it is, when it does come time to, 
run that playbook for their own business. There's just a little bit more background and context on on what's going on in the public markets, right? Because what I would say is in the early days, man, I mean, the only thing that matters is really like, can I build a really great product that customers love? <laughs> and can I get the next incremental customer to sign up for it? And am I incrementally better or, you know, 10x better than, than the alternative? And the close, and, and can I can I build that business in a sustainable way? And look, like, I don't think anyone's expecting the early stage software companies to be like fully profitable, right? Like at the end of the day, us as venture capitalists, our businesses and our industry depends on companies not being profitable. We we provide the burn capital for these companies. Like if they were profitable from day one, they wouldn't need us, right? And there is kind of an understanding that as these software companies evolve, losses and growth turns to lower growth and profit in the later day, like that, that still exists. I think, you know, macro aware with probably like a very light awareness, but usually more so as it relates to just like, how do I build a plan and, and not necessarily get caught up in, in kind of like the incremental hype. Uh, I think at the earlier stages, right, it's it's almost more something of, hey, this you need the lightest awareness yeah. versus yeah, yeah, as, yeah, you, totally. as you as you get up towards the later stages, you know, it mm-hmm. certainly increases in, in that awareness. You're starting to be closer to the public markets. You're starting to be closer to what, how they're going to value when you finally do yeah. PO. And so uh, that certainly is important to getting that next round yeah. done at, at something that you think is attractive. And, and maybe um, just, just relate to that as well, because you kind of kickstarted my brain a little bit. I think at the end of the day, the fundraising process can be very opaque for founders, where <clears throat> there's not a lot of information asymmetry on either side. But as investors, ultimately, what we're trying to think through is, what will this company be worth one day in the future? And even if you're investing at the seed or the series A or very early stages, like at the end of the day, the public markets are the final arbiter of valuation, whether that's an IPO event or even a big acquisition, which there's usually, you know, like a, a multiple ascribed to it, which looks more like a public multiple than a private multiple. So I think the more that founders understand more of the psyche and mentality of an investor who says, hey, I might be investing in this private multiple, but in my head, I'm thinking about an exit with this exit multiple. I think it can help founders almost like understand the leverage points that private investors are looking at and the lenses that they're evaluating the private business in. Because I could look, I can, on one hand, you might say, hey, well, these public multiples went up and down. Like, why does that affect my private multiple, like I'm not a public company, but I think it's just being in the psyche and mentality of a private investor and and kind of being able to see through that lens will just kind of help them more during the fundraising process, which I'm sure can be, can seem very opaque. Like, wait, wait a second. Like why are people were willing to pay me X valuation last year, but I've grown three X and now you're only willing to pay me Y? Like what, what gives? So I don't know, just a small thought. I think it's it's always funny because uh, I think especially at the earliest stages, founders ask like, "Well, how did you arrive at this valuation?" It's kind of just like, "Well, it's more of a function of of dilution based on right, how much sure. you raised, right?" <laughs> like, right. It's, there's just certain amounts where we don't want to take too much of the company, right? Mm-hmm. And we want the we want to make sure the founders are incentivized. And so there's this there's this weird balance where in the early days, it's all this sort of very funny. There's no math; it's much more art than science. And then slowly. The, the flip side happens where it starts to become much more, if you want to call it science, as as you start to have more multiples to look at and, and public comps to look at and stuff. So I think that's a weird shift that happens. But hopefully for the founders listening, you know, you, you've heard from Jamin, like just how to think about it and, and, and maybe how to put yourself in the 
investors' shoes to understand, you know, what may what they may be looking at. Yeah. I um, think what I heard you say are later stage investors are a little bit more thoughtful, but m- maybe I didn't hear that right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love it. You, you know, know, it's funny. I was at a dinner the other week, and someone said something similar. It's like, you know, every stage investor, the the investor who invests one stage after them, that investor always thinks the investor before them was dumb and knew nothing, right? And then there's the investor who comes after them who thinks they're dumb and know nothing. And then that like keeps, keeps happening, you know, whether it goes from like venture investing to growth investing to like private equity and public, like, you know, the investor who comes before you is always dumb and doesn't know anything. And you're the thoughtful one. I don't know. Just a, just a funny anecdote. I, I think that's completely the case. And th- it's really funny because I, I will sometimes, somebody will ask me, well, how big is the TAM, right? Especially if it's <laughs> someone who's, who's a little bit later than, than, than where we focus it. And I will kind of, look at them and be like, I'm not sure that question is relevant right now because the company's still at, you know, a million of ARR, right? Yeah. So we're just yeah, 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 we're just yeah, trying yeah. to figure out how they're going to execute, right? But it's it's very interesting because also I think the TAM analysis that I've seen some of the the later stage investors do is is frankly brilliant and yeah. done in ways that I was like, wow, okay, this is a, a new way of thinking through the business. Like right. Datadog is more of a uh, attach rate to cloud spend versus yeah. versus anything like that. I'm like, that is such an interesting mathematical concept at which to evaluate that TAM. But at the early stage, I'm just like, hey, can you just get one developer to use the product, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then can you go from one to 10 to 100, right? So I think it's a it's a very interesting challenge to, to understand so, everyone yeah, else's yeah. viewpoint. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So to, to wrap things up, two questions that we ask everyone here on Snackbytes. So the first one is, what's your favorite technology or app mm-hmm. that you play with or research, researched recently? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, Shomik, have you heard about this new generative AI trend? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I will jump uh, off. <laughs> let me think. I'll give you like a weird one that is totally boring, but I actually loved. <laughs> so I, I was on a flight just last week. This is, this is going to sound so stupid. I'm sure your other guests give much better answers. But on United, when I want to watch a movie on the screen in front of my chair, you always have to like plug in your headphones. You can't use your Bluetooth headphones. But for the first time, the I saw an option that let you connect your Bluetooth headphones to the, the seat screen to watch a movie, which I loved because finally I could listen to a movie, not in those little teeny, you know, like, you know, the old version of the earbuds that you can't really hear anything because the plane's loud. So I'd say Bluetooth in airplane seats was something that I absolutely loved, which again, Bluetooth's been around forever. But this version of it, uh, or, or this implementation of it, I loved because finally I could actually hear the movie. I literally, I've never seen, because I always have my AirPods and I yeah. forget to bring in the plug and then yeah, I'm yeah, sitting yeah. there like on a long flight and I'm just like, oh God, this yeah. is going to so be Yeah, so then, miserable. you know, you watch like the United movie on your phone because like that's what your headphones connect to versus like the screen that's three times as big. So that that's that's my one product that I've loved recently, but it's not necessarily an exciting one. Was this like a new mythical magic, magical, like, it was uh, just, fancy I, it was, I, no, I, I think it was just, a, it didn't seem to, <laughs> but <laughs> there was an option for connect your Bluetooth headphones, which I loved. That's amazing. Well, yeah. that, that I thank you for letting me know. Cause now yes. I will look at for that on planes. I yes. haven't, that's been a big pain point. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then of course it's called software snack bites. So we got to yeah, ask yeah. this, what's your favorite snack? There's a snack that is very unhealthy, but you almost feel kind of health, not healthy but you feel like you're cheating. Okay. So it's, it's the Trader Joe's version of basically Reese's peanut butter cups, but they make it like dark chocolate 
it doesn't feel like it's as unhealthy because it's a Trader Joe's brand versus a Reese's brand, even though I'm sure it's like equally unhealthy, if not more unhealthy. And so it's the way I justify eating Reese's peanut butter cups is by eating the dark chocolate Trader Joe's version of it. So that's, that's my favorite, you know, unhealthy, healthy snack. <laughs> they will be, they'll probably be flying off the shelves now, but do you put them in the freezer or the fridge or just eat them room temperature? Just room temp. Okay. All the right. Well, <laughs> well, I will go out and get me a, get me a pack of them shortly after this, but Jamin, thanks for the time. Amazing to talk to you as always. And I'm glad we were able to do this in a, in a format where others are able to hear our conversation. Cause I think there's a lot of learnings here. What's the best way for people to, to find you and stay in touch and, and, and reach out to you? Yeah. Yeah. Twitter works well. Post a lot of my thoughts there. DMs are open. Email works well as well. First name, Jammin at altimeter.com. So e- either of those options work works great. L- LinkedIn well, gets a little spammy, less so than Twitter, weirdly. So I, I do miss a lot of LinkedIn DMs. I think, wow, you might be the first person that said LinkedIn is more spammy for you because <laughs> for me, like I get a new crypto DAO NFT launch pretty much. I guess know, maybe daily. it's just, it's easier to filter. Like it's just, it's usually the, the Twitter ones are so obviously bad. They're, they're either like obviously good or obviously bad so fast. So it's, it's easy to do the kind of the, the mental filtering quickly. That makes sense. And then also, of course, can't recommend Clouded Judgment enough. Please, everyone who's listening, subscribe. The link will be in the show notes prominently. It is an awesome newsletter, has become a core part of my weekly reads. And Jamin, just thank you for synthesizing your thoughts and your research to make some of the things that you're you're thinking about, especially from a macro perspective, a lot easier for all of us to consume. So thanks so much. Yeah. Appreciate the time and talk to you soon.